Let's uh, get started with a word of prayer. Our Father, we rejoice to come together as the body of Christ. We thank you for the great privilege we have to meet on a Sunday morning and to look into your word. Thank you for the truth that is contained therein and how it speaks to our hearts, uh, gives us an understanding, Lord, that only comes from above. And so we pray your spirit would have freedom to speak to our hearts, to instruct us in the scriptures, and to get glory to Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, this is week number 38 in our study of eschatology. And uh, we're over in Ezekiel. Today we'll be in chapter 43. And so we'll continue to walk through um, these passages that speak of the temple during the millennial kingdom. Chapters 40 through 46 detail uh, the temple and the sacrifices and the um, what's to be done there, how it's to be done, who is supposed to do it, what does it look like, all of these details given in the scriptures. And you know, I believe this temple is the millennial kingdom temple. It's for the Israelites uh, mainly. Uh, there are other people who are, are able to go there, but mainly for the Israelites. And this is God's prescribed way of how he will be worshipped during the Millennial Kingdom. And so we'll look at some of those sacrifices today and look at the details of what the scripture says, because I think it gives us some understanding and some hints as to why this is being done. Um, so... We looked last week in chapter 43 and we saw the vision that Ezekiel had where the glory of God uh, came out of the east, came through the outer gate, came through the inner gate, went through the doors into the sanctuary, went through the doors into the Holy of Holies and filled uh, what the scripture says is the tabernacle, which would be the nave, which is the holy place, and also the Holy of Holies, which is beyond the holy place. So we saw that last week that God um, had left, when he uh, left the temple that Solomon built back in chapter 10 of Ezekiel, he had had enough of the abominations of the people and so he left the temple that ultimately Nebuchadnezzar destroyed uh, and when he left he went to the east. And here, when he returns, he comes out of the east. And um, that eastern gate that God goes through uh, becomes very prominent, as we'll see in later chapters, in the worship of God and what he's prescribed of how he should be worshipped. So we'll pick up in verse 13 of chapter 43. That's kind of where we left off last week. And this next passage um, speaks of the altar, which you'll remember is in the inner court in front of the t um, tabernacle or the sanctuary proper. You remember there were stairs that go up to a porch that's 20 cubits wide and I think it was 10 cubits deep. And then there are doors that go into the nave and that area is uh, 20 cubits wide and uh, 40 cubits deep. And then you go through another set of doors and you're in the Holy of Holies and that is 20 cubits square, 20 by 20. 
And so we're out in the courtyard just in front of that temple when we talk about the altar. So beginning in verse 13 of chapter 43, and these are the measurements of the altar by cubits, the cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. The base shall be a cubit and the width a cubit and its border on its edge ran about one span and there shall be the height of the base of the altar. From the base on the ground to the lower ledge shall be two cubits and the width one cubit. And from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge shall be four cubits and the width one cubit. The altar hearth shall be four cubits and the altar hearth shall extend upward and, and the altar hearth shall extend upward four horns. Now the altar hearth shall be 12 cubits long by 12 wide, square in its four sides. The ledge shall be 14 cubits long by 14 cubits wide in its four sides. The border around it shall be half a cubit and its base shall be a cubit round about and its step shall face the east. So after you get through all of that, and you start to stand back and look at it, this altar is huge, okay? You notice there in verse 17, it says it's 12 cubits by 12 cubits. So it's like 22 cubit, I mean 22 feet by 22 feet, and then around it is a, a ledge that is also 22 inches wide, almost two feet. So by the time you get it all laid out and you stand back and look at it, this thing is like 26 feet by 26 feet. I mean, it's huge. You probably don't have a room in your house that's 26 feet by 26 feet. Um, so, it, I mean, it's very, very large. You could burn a lot of animals on there at one time. And that's its purpose. And then on the corners, on the four corners of it, you have horns that stick up. It doesn't tell us how high they stick up, but some kind of cylindrical horn that is important because that's where you sprinkle the blood. And so you have this, and then there are steps that go up to this thing. So it's, it's prominent, it's highly lifted up, and you have to go up a series of steps to get up to where you could then sacrifice. So obviously the steps and the uh, area where you walk around this altar is even bigger so that you could carry animals up there and, and burn them, sacrifice them to the Lord. So this thing is very large and it sits in front of the temple with its steps facing to the east. Now the steps of the temple also face to the east because the temple is against the west wall. Of, well, there's a building behind it, but it's against toward the western wall of the temple area. So you go up these steps to the altar, and if you're going to then carry this sacrifice meat into the holy place, you've got to come back down the stairs, walk around the altar, go back up the stairs to the porch of the temple, and then go through the doors. And so that's what they did. That's the, what God prescribed this or what they will do this is how it will look during the millennial kingdom and you'll remember the only guys who can go into that 
temple area or the inner court and who can go up on the altar and who can actually take the meat to be burned are the sons of Zadok. Um, so the, the rest of the priests can't go into this area and, and cannot minister the sacrifices and take them, what the scripture says, is near to the Lord. So they can't go in the holy place where God dwells and are into the holy of holies. Um, they're not allowed to go in there. And we'll see pretty soon that the garb, the um, clothes that the priests, the sons of Zadok wear are, are prescribed precisely. What they have to wear, what they can't wear, um, where they have to take it, change their clothes at, all of that's prescribed in here. And we'll eventually um, see those details given, given when we get to the um, Levitical priest and he describes what they must do. Now I went back and I read about Zadok because I wanted to make sure I had this right. Okay, so um, Zadok was around when da King David was throned and when um, Solomon was declared. Matter of fact, Zadok was involved in the declaration that Solomon would be king after David. And you remember there were two of David's sons that rebelled against him, the first one being Absalom. And when Absalom declared himself to be king, David actually fled from Jerusalem, went to Hebron, and he had a lot of people with him. And then Absalom went after him, and ultimately David's forces destroyed Absalom's, and he went back and was king again. But then you had uh, another son who um, rebelled against David, and I don't ever get this name right. Um, any of y'all remember what that son's name was? Yeah, Adonijah. I, always, I can't spell it and I can't say it. But Adonijah, just when David was very old, um, went out into really the fields and had some, some of the priests with him, but not Zadok. Zadok, during Absalom, helped David to overcome Absalom, and now with um, the second rebellion, does the same thing. He stays with David and is the one who actually declares Solomon to be king while the rebels are out in the field. And now when they did that, those guys were terrified because, you know, this, David was in Jerusalem, he was on his throne still, and they declare Solomon to be king, and he gets seated on the throne. And ultimately, Solomon kills his half-brother um, for being a rebel. And so, but twice during David's reign, he had sons who tried to overcome, take, overcome him and take his kingdom, and Zadok was one of the few priests who remained faithful to David and helped him. And so for that, here in the millennial kingdom, God rewards them with that they're the only ones who can go into the inner court and into the sanctuary itself. The rest of the priests have to stay out. They're, they're there to minister, and so they're the guys who keep the gates and the ones who keep order in the, in the courtyard, they're the ones who would take the animals to the sons of Zadok 
but they can't do the sacrifices. They can't um, minister at the altar. So uh, it's very, you could go back and you can read about Zadok and um, it's all over the place. It's in 2 Samuel, it's in 1 Kings, it's in 2 Kings, it's in 1 Chronicles, it's in 2 Chronicles. Um, I want to say it's a, a couple other places, but it's at least in those five books that you read about Zadok and his activities and what he did. Now those stories, if, if you've ever read all of that, uh, the Kings repeats what was said um, in the Chronicles. Well, Chronicles actually covers both um, the Samuel and uh, the Kings. So there's some repeat, but you get different perspectives because different guys are writing it, but they're writing about the same events. So anyway, you may want to read some of that. There's five or six chapters, and you'll get a good picture of what is going on. Go ahead. Yeah. To prophesy of this continuing line of Zadok's mind. If it's not important. If it's not a literal kingdom. Right. If it's if it's just allegorical, then it, it makes it's just one of many things that make absolutely no sense in that allegorical perspective. Yeah, it it is, and I mean that's one of the greatest arguments for um, the millennial kingdom and all is that you have historical figures that are then tied to this temple and to the worship and all of that. So that would make no sense if it was just all allegory. If you have a historical figure that's tied to what's going on here. Because, I mean, Zadok wasn't just an imaginary person. I mean, he was there with David. He, he protected David. He helped David. He anointed Solomon. I mean, he was there. He, he did activities, and these are his ancestors or descendants who are, um, who are now in the millennial kingdom performing, um, you know, coming near to the Lord, doing the sacrifices that please God. So yeah, it, um, and, and that's a lot of the arguments here. You know, when we saw the cherubs with two faces as the lion on one face and a man on the other, uh, representing, I believe, the Lord Jesus Christ and his, king, and his kingship, and in his humanity. And again, tying um, historical figures and historical people to the literal reign during the kingdom. Now we haven't seen Jesus Christ in the, in the temple. He's not mentioned. He, he doesn't show up anywhere in the temple, so he is on his throne somewhere else in Jerusalem. We know that um, because he is reigning and he is the king, um, but underneath him are princes, Twelve of those would be the apostles who reign over the twelve tribes. But then there are other princes also that we'll see today. Um, a very unique individual that is named out only in the millennial kingdom. And he's very important to the worship of God. So we'll see him in just uh, a couple of minutes. Now this, um, so you get through the altar and we know where it is and, and how large it is and what it looks like. And then you move into verses 18 through 27 of 43. And this passage describes what I would call the initial sacrifices on the altar. These are, um, their purpose is to consecrate the altar and to initiate 
um, the sacrificial um, worship, but it is only done one time. And this period lasts eight days, by the way, I count. So we'll see that named here. Look in, look in verse 18, and you'll see very clearly that we're, we're starting something. And he, said, and he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the statutes for the altar on the day it is built to offer burnt offerings on it and to sprinkle blood on it. So this, you know, I, I don't know exactly how this works. What we've seen is that Ezekiel is uh, predominantly chronological. So the question is, does God go into the temple and then they build this altar? Or is it already built and God kind of goes over the altar to get into the temple? I don't know. But this is the only place in all of this description of the temple that you see something being built. And this is the only, you know, because he says on the day that it is built. So it's got to be after God comes into the temple. So I kind of tend to believe that the altar isn't there when God goes in. And then they build the altar in order to be able to worship God and to do the sacrifices that he prescribes. Uh, is kind of the way that I think about it. I could be wrong, but that's the way it kind of reads to me. So this happens on the day that they build the altar. Um, so I don't know if it's built in one day or multiple days. We don't know who builds this temple and the whole area around it. It's not described in Scripture anywhere. There's no command to build it. Um, but here, clearly, they're going to build the altar. It's the only place in all of this that we see them um, at least referencing something being built. Okay, so on the day that it is um, built, they're going to offer burnt offerings on it, and then he gives the details about that. You shall give it to the Levitical priests who are the offspring of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a young bull for a sin offering. So on the first day here, they um, bring a, a bull into the, uh, you know, into the gates, put him on the tables, kill him, take his blood from him, then take the carcass to the altar so that they can burn it. And then he gets very precise details of what they should do. Verse 20, you shall take some of his blood and put it on the four horns that are on the corners of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge, and on the border round about. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. You shall also take the bull for the sin offering, and it shall be burned in the appointed place of the house outside the sanctuary. Now, he could have just said, and you take it to the altar and you burn it, because that is the appointed place. And it is, like we said, in, in the inner court, but outside of the sanctuary, in front of the sanctuary, actually. So the first day, they take this bull without blemish, take his blood, sprinkle it on the four horns, sprinkle it all around the ledge of the altar, and then burn the bull on the altar. And that's it. You're done for the first day. Um, then they go to the second day in verse 22. On the second day, 
You shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. So you do the same thing with this goat on the second day that you did on the first day with the, um, with the bull. Now, I don't, you know, all the goats that I've seen are just little tiny goats and they're dumb and they, you know, eat rubber and do, do crazy things. I don't think that's what we're talking about here, <laughs> okay? I, I think we're talking about a, a, a pretty significant male goat that doesn't look like the little goats that I've seen that are just as dumb as they, I mean, it's got to be the dumbest animal on the planet. <laughs> so, um, but nevertheless, so they sacrifice, and then on that second day, they do additional sacrifices. You know, you see it in verse 23, when you have finished cleansing it, you shall present a young bull without blemish and a ram without blemish from the flock. Okay, so you sacrifice on the second day a goat, a bull, and a ram. And you notice how he just sort of references and says, from the flock? Well, that's a very specific flock of animals. It's not just anybody's flock. And we'll see that detailed in, in a little while. Um, these are the, the animals that live just outside the temple area and are raised for these sacrifices. And if one has a blemish, he's called out because he's not worthy to be sacrificed. You notice all of these say without blemish. And so um, you shall present them before the Lord and the priest shall throw salt on them and they shall offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. So they're on the altar is where they're being sacrificed. And then you notice it says, in verse 25, for seven days you shall daily, prepare daily a goat for a sin offering, also a young bull and a ram from the flock without blemish shall be prepared. So on the first day you sacrifice a bull, and then for seven days you sacrifice a goat, a bull, and a ram. So that's eight days that this ceremony lasts. And there are a lot of animals that are killed during those days. I mean, that'd be 21, 22 animals that get sacrificed and, and their blood sprinkled and burnt on the altar. What does it mean, I'm saying, you'll cleanse it? Yeah, I mean, this is the, I, I think the best way to think of the consecration of the altar, because so, you'll see at the end, so it, it can be used by the people to give offerings that are acceptable to God. This is the preparation of the altar, is what's going on here. It's only done one time at the very beginning, and then, it, then the sacrifices change after these eight days. And if you keep reading, you'll see that. Um, he says the seven days in verse 26, and then 27. When they have completed the days, it shall be on the eighth day and onward, the priest shall offer your burnt offerings on the altar and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord. So this is the ritual. This is what God requires to cleanse and consecrate the altar so that it can be used to give sacrifices to God that are acceptable to him and that he will receive. So it's only done one time at the very beginning. And you notice 
at least I did, at the end of verse 27 there, and the priest shall offer your burnt offering offerings on the altar and your peace offerings and I will accept you. Nowhere in there do you see anything about sin offerings. So when the people begin to bring their animals after this consecration, it's a peace offering, it's a burnt offering, but he doesn't say for sin. So don't know if that's significant or not, but it's certainly different than what he said at the beginning of the, of the ritual where the bull is given as a sin offering, the goat is given as a sin offering, because these are human beings. They are redeemed, they're saved, just like you and I today are, but they still sin, just like you and I today still continue to sin. So it's needful to, to talk about why does God have the sacrificial system that is similar to the Old Testament, not exactly the same, but similar to those that are in the Old Testament, why are those restarted during the Millennial Kingdom? Because clearly here God prescribes for those eight days of um, sacrifice and then ongoing sacrifices that go over 4,000 years. So, um, you know, these... Um, these sacrifices are not efficacious, just like the ones in the Old Testament weren't. They, um, God doesn't forgive sin based upon these sacrifices. Rather, they point, I believe, they commemorate, they reference the true sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he did in the heavenly places where he sprinkled blood on the true altar. Yeah, his, his own personal blood. And, you know, there's some debate about when that happens because the scriptures doesn't detail that for us. Um, but I believe it's not too long after he himself was sacrificed. Um, it could have been in the three days when he was in the tomb. Um, it could be later. I mean, we don't know exactly, but I believe it has been done by today um, that Jesus Christ has sprinkled the blood on the altar, because otherwise we wouldn't be placing faith in him, because he would not have yet completed what was required. Um, so um, he did sprinkle his blood on the Holy of Holies, and these sacrifices commemorate, point to the king of the kingdom. That's, that's what I believe these are for. They're, they're not efficacious in any way. They don't cause sins to be forgiven but they commemorate the one sacrifice that did cause sin to be forgiven. None of that is stated in here. None of that is clear, clearly spoken of. But you get to Hebrews where, you know, once for all, Jesus Christ sacrificed himself. So when you get to the millennial kingdom, there is no need for an efficacious sacrifice because the one that was effective has already been sacrificed. So that these cannot be for the forgiveness of sins because that would actually be blasphemy against Jesus Christ. So these simply commemorate, cause people to think about. I mean, it's like the, we said this, like the Lord's Supper for us today causes us to think about, to dwell upon, to uh, reason about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's something to cause us, to stir us, to help us to remember 
so are these sacrifices. These sacrifices are so for a thousand years while they're offering them, the Israelites' mind will be taken to the fact that Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for them. So um, I, th I think it's very, very similar to what we do with communion today. Um, Oh, absolutely. Right? I mean, nowhere else do you get that picture. Matter no. fact, in Revelation, you get the most comprehensive picture you will ever find of the pre-millennial reign period of seven years. Right. But when you get to the millennial reign and you're thinking about the church, you don't get, you get this, and we will reign with him. Right. And then and you that, get this picture in Ezekiel where it is, and this is the point, it is a very Jewish Oh, absolutely. Jerusalem-centric picture that is pointing that this entire millennial reign is presenting the true worship that God always demanded of Israel. Right. This is, this is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. That's what this is. And, and people get that wrong. And they don't realize that uh, Israel is, as Ezekiel said, at the center of the world and is where Jesus Christ will reign and is where God will dwell for a thousand years. And it's all about the Israelites. It's, it's the Israelites that God brought back to the land, not just the church or anybody else. Well, if, yeah, if you... If you believe the church replaced Israel, and there are many who do, who are true believers, then you have to say Ezekiel is not real. You have to. It demands you to say that because Israel won't exist in the, and there will be no millennial kingdom because here you see it is Israel-centric. It's all about the Jews. And so if you, don't be, if you believe the church replaced Israel, this can't happen. And so it forces you to say that Ezekiel is allegorical and it's not talking about anything that's real. So once you make that decision, it leads to all kinds of consequences in the rest of the scripture. And, and you have to go there, you have no choice because you've already declared this can't happen because Israel doesn't exist anymore. Physically. That, that Jesus is going to be reigning, and the saints are going to be reigning with him. The, the Israelites are in the temple and in, in Israel, and the rest of the world is being administered through the Lord's government by what? The church? By all those who place faith in Christ, yep. you know, e either during the church age or during the tribulation. Yep. And. Um, and, and, and maybe, maybe a few who live through the tribulation into the millennial kingdom. Um, you know, those I'm not so sure about, and I only say that because of this. We know 
that those who go to be with the Lord, um, you know, you die physically or you die during the tribulation, that they receive glorified bodies. If someone lives through the tribulation and is a true believer and, and doesn't get killed and makes it into the millennial kingdom, then we have no definition of scripture where they're given glorified bodies. So, you just, I mean, there, there are several different groups of people that you can't say anything definitively about them. You know, there are a lot of people, good, true, strong believers, guys that I follow, who say that every single unbeliever is killed during the tribulation age. I don't see it. I don't see it in scripture. If scripture said it, I would believe it. But scripture does not say that. And so I, I don't go there. I think there are a lot of people that are in these nations that are observing Jesus Christ reigning over Jerusalem that <clears throat> then understand that God is sovereign but yet still do not place faith in Jesus Christ and are unbelievers that live in the nations and those nations are administered politically and legally by the, those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ and are now in glorified bodies reigning over the earth with Jesus Christ. If anything, the scriptures give you a picture that those that are actually in silent rebellion to Christ are increasing all sure. the way to the very end when that final... Where we see chapters 39 and 40 with the final war, right? Um, so, very different picture. But, and, and, and people refuse adamantly to believe that God is going to do something for Israel, which means Ezekiel can't be real. It has to be allegorical. But I take everything that is said here as literal, that it's actually going to happen, that God is going to dwell in that temple. And, and then, you know, how do you trend? And at the end of it all, you do have the rebellion of the world against Israel again, and fire comes down from heaven and all those things that we looked at in chapters 39 and 40 and destroys them. Again, I don't think every unbeliever is, is killed. But, and, and then it transitions from there to the great white throne judgment. And there are a lot of different perspectives of how you get from the millennial kingdom to the great white throne judgment where the large and the small parade before God and the books are opened. Um, how do you get from there? I believe that the world, the universe, everything is uncreated because the scripture says there's no longer a place found for them, for the sun or the moon or the earth. There's no place found for them, meaning they don't exist. I could be wrong. A lot of people believe that the world will just be renewed and after the great white throne judgment, then the heavenly Jerusalem will come down. You don't know all of those because it's not given in Scripture, but these things are given in Scripture. These details that we've been looking at are given in Scripture. And, and you know, we followed it all the way from when God called Abraham and promised him a land, and now here we are in the fulfillment of those promises in living color. As, as much as they could be fulfilled, it's here. Every single detail. So I don't, I don't know how you get around that. And you remember all through that we've looked at, um, we, we started in Genesis, we went to Deuteronomy, we looked at Joshua, 
Um, we uh, have been in Ezekiel, and all through those passages, God speaks about the land. It's not man who's speaking about it. It's God who keeps bringing it up. Um, and it's God who brings it up here in Ezekiel. And so here he is fulfilling what he ultimately promised to Abraham. And, and once you go down that path of believing the church replaces Israel, there is no turning back. You must throw, you must discard. This is simply being allegorical. Right. Absolute lawlessness. And we're headed there now. We see it. We see the underpinnings well above. Well, yeah, you see the world like being turned upside down, down, right? Lawlessness right now. Yeah. But what's well, fascinating is during the millennial reign, Christ is reigning, and what's he reigning with? Right. The law. Oh, absolutely. Right. So, I am, and with an iron rod. You see a proper, everything he told Adam to do, we're going to get a seat. Yeah, and even though there will still be rebellion, but the world will be a peaceful place because the church will be reigning over it and will, with an iron rod, and will put down any uprisings. So, I mean, that's, that's the millennial kingdom. That's why it's peaceful, by the way. It's not peaceful because nobody wants to fight. It's peaceful because no one is allowed to fight. So it's just a different picture, but it's the picture, I believe, that rises out of Scripture. So um, that's why we're going through these details, because I want you to be as convinced as I am that this is real. This isn't just um, a fantasy or a fairy tale or allegorical. This is what will be reality. Okay, now, just, just so we can get it on the table, Read the first three verses of the next chapter, of 44. He brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces the east, and it was shut. So the eastern gate is shut. The Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, he shall sit in it as prince to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of the gate and shall go out by the same way. So, the eastern gate, and I'm not exactly sure whether this is the gate to the inner court or the gate to the outer court. I think it's the gate from the outer court to the inner court. That's where I, I wind up. And that gate that God went through is shut because God went through it and it's holy to the Lord. And the only person who can even go on the porch of this gate is someone called the prince. So next time we need to look at what the scripture says about this guy called the prince. 
I personally believe it's a human being. It's not the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll show you that, why I believe that. And I think the scripture explicitly states it's not him. And, uh, but he has a very, very significant role in the administration of the religious system that goes on during the Millennial Kingdom. He is a very prominent person. We don't know where he came from. We don't know his, his ancestry. We don't know any of that. But we'll see what he does and that he is a very special person. And he's even allotted his own um, land as an individual given to him. So um, we'll look at all those details next time and try to find who the prince is and why he's so special. The rest of this chapter does not speak about the prince. It talks about the Levitical priesthood. So we only get a glimpse of him here, but we'll go ahead and expand it a little bit and look at who he is next time, if the Lord wills. Thanks for your time.